as we uh, launch into a new year, I, I really truly believe that God has uh, put it on my heart to talk to you about what is, uh, I'm calling building a Jesus-centered culture. The first Sunday of the year is always this turning of the chapter. It's this honest assessment of our lives. I mean, how many of you out there have made New Year's resolutions? Two. All right. How many of you have done it before, and that's why you're never doing it again? <laughs> now we're talking. That's right. But it is a time for us to reflect, isn't it? Yes. It's to give praise and thanksgiving for the things which have occurred in our lives over the past year and, and express some hope uh, for the coming year and uh, to really take this kind of assessment period. Uh, when we think about our culture today, you think about the current culture situation in the church in America. I would contend that it is changing. It has been changing over the last few years. And um, some churches seem to be kind of dwindling and dying off. And some are being, uh, having incredible success at reaching the culture, uh, the lostness in our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of churches have, have reduced themselves to almost no impact in the cities in which they exist. And some have profound impact. And what I want to share with you today is not just about church, it's about our families. It's about our lives. And the way we live out our faith, the way we process our faith, the way that we look at the world through our faith. How do we build a Jesus-centered culture as a church? And the extension, how do we build this Jesus-centered life as individuals? It's a critical question. Because what research is telling us is that churches that focus on Jesus, that's a novel thing, isn't it? Are reaching the next generation. I say praise the Lord for that. And those that aren't focused on Jesus are actually dying. I also say that's good news. It's not revolutionary. Isn't the church of Jesus Christ supposed to be all about Jesus Christ? So building a Jesus-centered culture simply agrees with the truth that He is the center of all things. It, it, it matters not what our opinions are. Jesus is the center of all things. That is the truth. Let me give you a few scriptures, Colossians 1.17. Speaking of Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Well, that sounds to me like he's pretty much at the center of things. There is no truth outside of Jesus. Look at Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to... Christ. 
He is the ruler over all things. And only in Him can people feel this completeness, wholeness. Colossians 2.10 And in Him you have been made complete. That's not... That, that, that is a startling phrase. In Him you have been made complete. In other words, nothing else needed. He is the head over all rule and authority. One of the trends we see in the evangelical Christian world today is this migration away from the centrality of Jesus Christ to a more inclusive, less divisive faith. And it's having disastrous results. There's a national study of youth and religion that concluded that the predominant belief young people who grew up with, who grew up in the traditional church, folks, these are surveying of young people who grew up in a traditional evangelical church, have a faith that is best described with these three words, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Moralistic, it means being nice. The church has constantly been encouraging them to just be a nice person, be a nice uh, father, be a nice worker, be kind to your neighbors. Niceness. Don't do bad things, do good things. Take cookies to your neighbors when they move in, right? Nice. Therapeutic. In other words, find ways to feel good, make yourself happy. Deism. There's this deism is the this idea that God created all things and then kind of retreated to let it kind of operate on its own. In other words, there's this common belief in young people today that God is some kind of distant, almost fairy godmother type of being that makes all things good and all things right and fixes all things. And I read a testimony of a girl named Alyssa. She's age 18. She's going to talk to us this morning about her beliefs in moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, she doesn't call it that, but listen to her testimony about spiritual things. She says this, the central message of the gospel is that someone is always there for you. And that there are many different paths you can take, but ultimately they lead to the same thing, which is heaven. I feel like there are many good things you can do and many bad things you can do, but no matter what, you are always going to be forgiven. Even if you think something is unforgivable, God is like, the, he's like this magic person that can always cure it and can make it okay. Oh, and there is always going to be a happy place. Even when you are in your darkest of darks, there is always going to be a light that is there for you. Is that a common theology amongst young people today, do you think? Teenagers and emerging adults in America are not... They're not devising this type of lukewarm faith on their own. They are not substituting moralistic therapeutic deism for the messages they hear. What they're doing is they're just simply modeling what they have seen in their churches and in their homes. They are mimicking a tame 
version of faith that they have watched in those older. I make the comment that Jesus is never tame. Amen. It is easy for the church, folks, to fall into the trap of encouraging people to be more moral by appealing to behavior modification and trying your best to be a good person, be a nice person, be a positive contributor to society. It's easy to fall into the trap to be therapeutic by organizing services each week with one goal and one goal only, and that is to lift your spirits and make you feel happy and good. Or to portray God as someone who, ah, I guess the best way to put it is kind of like, he's kind of like our servant. His role is to kind of make things work out in this life. Another popular belief, especially amongst young people today, is what we call the golden rule Christian or golden rule Christianity. Nancy Emmerman in her book, Golden Rule Christianity, says this. She says, most important to golden rule Christians is care for relationships, doing good deeds, and looking for opportunities to provide care and comfort for people in need. Their goal is neither changing another's beliefs nor changing the whole political system. They would like the world to be a bit better for their having inhabited it, but they harbor no dreams of grand revolutions. It's another way of saying just be nice. The root of this version of the golden rule faith isn't really faith at all. It's simply behavioralism. It's it's performance-driven Faith, just do good and try not to do bad. God is found when you are doing good things and uh, along the way just learn to tolerate and embrace those who are different. And most disturbingly, Jesus is largely absent from the picture. If we're going to uh, live Jesus-centered lives, if we're going to embrace and seek after and be motivated towards a Jesus-centered culture, we have to be aware of the threats. The threats to a Jesus-centered culture. And I want to present to you three, what I term to be threats to a church becoming solely focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the first is a me-centered culture. Honestly, how many of you need me to explain what a me-centered culture is? Do we live in one? Do we have first-hand experience with a me-centered culture? I want you to know, it's, it can be very overt, but it can be very subtle and seductive, can't it? It really is easy to fall into a trap that our lives are all about us. And uh, we get messages all the time that way. And uh, many times we'll seek friends and churches and organizations that kind of feed this. And what slowly happens is that churches can kind of morph into this me-centered culture. 
where everything is geared towards helping individuals find their own personal peace and prosperity and uh, happiness and it's all about you. It can be very enticing. But something is missing from the me-centered culture and, well, it's the theme of the day. It's Jesus. <laughs> Another thread is a church-centered culture. You ever been in a church-centered culture church? This is a trap so many fall into because it's where everything becomes about the success of the organization or the ministry. We devise programs to promote numerical growth, financial expansion. And I don't have to tell you, there's a direct link between a church-centered culture and a me-centered culture because the church-centered culture is always appealing to the me-centered culture because it thinks it will increase numbers. And you have to shy away of certain things. You have to kind of avoid certain subjects. Second Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come, speaking of the last days in which we live, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. So you have a me-centered culture, a church-centered culture, and this third one... Dare I say it, a belief-centered culture. This is so, so subtle. It's a tool that the enemy uses. Let me explain. Do we need to teach sound doctrine? Do we need to teach good theology? Yes. But it is so easy to trip a bit and to morph into a shared life together that is elevating doctrine or perhaps a particular doctrine that is distinctive to a particular church or movement or denomination. And they're going to harp on their distinctive doctrines because we've got it. They don't. What's the implication? Come to us. There are some churches that want to be known as the church that focuses on holiness or grace. People in those churches may say this is a place of grace or this is a, a place where the truth is taught and What about saying this is the place where Jesus lives? You see the subtle? Should we teach grace? Yes. Should we teach truth? Yes. Should we teach holiness? Yes. But all through the filter of who? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Churches that are reaching the next generation, folks, and people in general with the gospel have been able to make three distinct shifts in the culture of the church and in the way they live their lives. You want to know what those three shifts are? You just can't wait, can you? 
The first one is this. Less talk about abstract beliefs and more talk about Jesus. Wow. We ought to be talking more about Jesus. Instead of simply agreeing with abstract theological truths and being so intellectually stimulated, young people are driven to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to know something. Contrary to popular belief, Jesus Christ is extremely popular today. Man, that was good. Man. I don't know what that was, but that was good. Man. Jesus is in control of this this morning, I tell you. More talk about Jesus. is I, I got this illustration out of this book, Growing Young. It says this, uh, there's a conversation between an interviewer and a participant uh, in the study that was uh, about youth and religion. Now, listen to this. The interviewer says, on a scale of one to five, how true is it that your church helps people know and understand the gospel or good news of Christianity? You hear the question? Scale of one to five, how effective is your church in helping people understand the gospel or good news of Christianity? The young person responds this way, of Christianity or Jesus? The interviewer says, of Christianity. The young participant says, well, Christianity is the name that we gave to the gospel of Jesus. So I don't like the question. Sorry, I get what you mean by the good news of the gospel, but it is not of Christianity. It is of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And it is not Christianity that brings the good news. It is Jesus. So as followers of Jesus, we bring the good news. But Christianity itself is a convoluted term, and it can be really harmful in the world. So we don't want to say that our church is trying to preach a gospel of Christianity, but of Jesus. Some of us who are older may think, these young people. But folks, this is the way they think. And I want you to know, I for one, as an older person, find it quite refreshing absolutely refreshing that there is a definite move away from institutionalized Christianity to the person of Jesus Christ. I believe this is good news. And I believe it's getting back to the heart of the real gospel truth. It's always been about Jesus. And I think it's intellectual arrogance to try to make it something other than the simple message of Christ. One of the things that young people who follow Jesus don't like to be called is Christian. The term has come to mean a certain kind of lifestyle or even a political action group rather than a follower 
of a person named Jesus. Rather than having their eyes focused on a movement to achieve something, it is on a person who is able to do all things. Hebrews 12. The first three verses. What a, what a verse for the new year. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, those who have gone before folks, those watching from the grandstands, if you will, let us, the church of today, lay aside every encumbrance, the trappings of church, the trappings of religion, and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's, church, what you do. Fixing your eyes where? On Jesus. (coughs) The author, the creator, if you will, and the perfecter, he who completes your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And those two verses are often coupled together, leaving out the third. But listen to the third. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And here's the reason he's endured. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's not our beliefs that keep us from growing weary or losing heart. It is who? (laughs) It's Jesus. The second shift is this. Of churches that are reaching the next generation and reaching the culture today. They're less tied to formulas and more focused on a redemptive narrative. Let me explain. Rather than insist that the good news is about specific words or linear steps, step one, step two, step three, step four, you're a Christian, go out and do good. It's grafting you into this overall narrative of God and man from the beginning of time to the end of time. Young people use story language to describe God's work in the world. And the Bible uses story to tell its truth about God and man. It is a story that is redemptive. And the more we help people understand Jesus as the centerpiece of this grand narrative of God, the more compelling he becomes. Reinforcing that whole idea is, again, found in Hebrews, the first chapter. The book of Hebrews begins with these verses. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in other words, that was that part of the story. Verse 2, in these last days, now that we turn the chapter to this time, He has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And hopefully you see that the Bible is presenting itself along this narrative story that we view history all 
from. Shift three. This one I had to really think about for a minute. And maybe this showed my age more than any of them. Less about heaven later and more about life here and now. (laughs) I like to think about heaven. Is that okay? I like to think about my eternal home. I like to think about being in a place where there is no evil. A place where I'm in His presence constantly and I'm enveloped by the glory of God. I like to think about heaven. But folks, if we're all just, uh, if all the time all we're doing is thinking, just hang on, heaven's coming, hang on, I know it's tough, heaven's coming, we're going to miss out. Amen. We're going to miss out on what God has prepared for us. Kara Powell, in, in this book, Growing Young, writes this, Salvation means more to young people than the assurance of heaven later. It also invites us into a new way of life in the present. This gospel is not simply something from 2,000 years ago or for 2,000 years from now. It's for today. A church leader from the West Coast shared this. The gospel is not a moment or a transaction. It is not even simply a message. It is a new way of living. A new reality that is intended to pervade everything in life. And it has both present and and eternal implications. We have good news to share, and it's Jesus. And I am so encouraged today that young people want to know Him. <laughs> They're hungry. They're hungry to know a reality that is not so boxed up and prepackaged, but is mysterious, even dangerous, untamed, and adventurous. Young people's resistance to a gospel presented as a list of no's is both fair and logical. Young people don't just want to be saved from something, they want to be saved for something. It's less, you're a sinner, change now, and more. This is awesome, come be a part of it. Over the last several months, weeks, I guess, you've heard me talk on how we sense that God is stirring us as a church. There's this growing burden that I share and leaders here share, staff, elders, that uh, we do all that we can to equip our next generation with the very reality of who Jesus is. And I'm convinced it can only happen when Jesus becomes central to all the ministries of the church. That Jesus is known as the only life changer there is. We want young people to see Jesus in us who are older. Amen. And in order to do that, we need to have relationships with them. The church is a family that crosses generational lines. And together we express this life of Jesus. We want to teach the person of Jesus Christ. 
so that all of us, including our youngest, know who he is and what he is like and what matters to him and what, what is uh, riling him up, what gets him excited, what motivates him. He is a radical person that brings a life that is so different, so upside down from the world in which we know. People need to know that life is only found in him. You're not going to be able to fit pieces of life together without him. You're not going to be able to be a good enough person to really be fulfilled. Only Jesus sets us free, makes us new, gives us power. And When young people graduate from high school and leave Grace Bible Church, well, they be followers of Christ. Or will they walk away from a religion that was taught to them to be a good, nice person and feel good about themselves and just turn to God when things aren't going well? Twenty eighteen. I want to give you a few plans. February. We're going to have an event where we're going to gather in all the leaders of our church. And we're going to cast a vision for a Jesus-centered culture. Where we place Him at the center of our intergenerational relationships. We place Him in the center of our teaching ministry. In March, we will be initiating a family teaching ministry to assist Families, moms and dads, and making Jesus central in their homes to elevate the use of Scripture and integrate it into all aspects of life. Children, youth, adults will all be sharing the same Scripture each week as in church so that conversations about Scripture are normal, are expected in the home. Also in February, we will be launching a new emphasis on prayer. I mean, if Jesus is going to be central in what we do, isn't prayer going to be central? Amen. And I want to close this service today simply by praying for the centrality of Jesus Christ in our church, in our lives. Ephesians 4 says that Jesus is the head of the church and we are all to grow up into him. Hebrews, as I read, says he's the author, he's the perfecter of our faith. Colossians says he has triumphed over all rulers and authorities of this world. And Philippians says that in Christ, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father God, you know all the things that you are doing in each individual person that sits in this audience this morning. You know the... uh, the place that they feel in their families, in this church family, in their workplace. And Father God, as as we as a church journey together, I pray that each and every person becomes uh, stimulated to to a more distinct and more sharpened focus on who it is that you are in their lives. 
who it is that you are in this church that we share together. Who it is that you are in our future, in, the, in our community. And that as we, we walk through the, the hallways and we hear the teachers and we, we hear what's going on Wednesday nights with our youth and we hear what's going on in our classes on Sunday morning and we hear what's being sung in our services and our ministries that take place, we will see there's this same centrality of Christ all throughout the ministries of our church. Father, we pray that you would do this amongst us. It's, 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 it's nothing that is now some bright new idea that we have. It's, it's, it's a calling to come and place ourselves before you and say, Lord, here I am. Here we are. And you have been stirring us towards this. And I pray that as we journey together down this path, that there would be an ever-increasing awareness of what, what it is that you're calling us to. Father God, we are your servants. Father God, we are your people. Father God, we bear the very life of Jesus in us. And for that we give you praise. An offering, a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.